0: All right, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and I'll go ahead and read, um, let me give you an introduction first. So Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to get down to verse 3, and the title is Jesus, the final word. So the author is going to write, and we don't know who he is, but we'll talk about that in just a moment, to encourage steadfastness in the faith. Believing Jews have come to faith, they've Uh, acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and they are Christians. But they're struggling with leaving all of the worship that happened at the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood that was there. How do they interact with that? And some of them were thinking about going back into the sacrifices. And Paul's going to write and say, they don't do anything for you anymore. There was a time and there was a place when these sacrifices and that priesthood was exactly what you needed because this is what God showed. But that is no longer the case. So if you go back to these sacrifices, you can't find any forgiveness of sins in the sacrifice like you used to because Jesus has been the fulfillment. But you can imagine the social and the family pressure that they were going through as Jews that had obeyed the word of God gone to the temple, and worshipped in that way. And now they are in this transition period, having received the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. There's one sense in which they're very excited and embracing the fulfillment, but there's another sense in which they're struggling through this transition. And so God graciously gives us the beautiful book of Hebrews to help through that transition. Who wrote the letter? Well, short answer, we don't know. If you read reading the intro, you read in the conclusion, and in between, there is no name given. It is anonymous. Some of the names that have been suggested have been Paul. That was one of the earliest church traditions. Clement um, wrote of this and said that it was Paul who authored Hebrews. Um, Origen wondered shortly after that whether it really was Paul. And still later, um, Tertullian wrote that it was Barnabas That wrote this. Remember Paul and Barnabas, his traveling companion? And that's because in one of the manuscripts, um, the book of Hebrews went under the name of the Epistle of Barnabas. So you have, in church history, you have differing opinions. But in the Bible, there's no contradiction. We just don't know, (laughs) which of course we don't like that. We like to know. But uh, if uh, you read through this, you'll see that there are things that sound very much like Paul. Um, I think that is my, my leaning is that it was Paul. Not dogmatic about it, but certainly important. As to when it was written, that's a little easier to answer. We know that Clement of Rome, when he wrote to the Corinthians, that's early church father, when he wrote to them, he made mention of the book of Hebrews in 95 A.D., So it can't be older than that. And at the end of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23, it makes reference to Timothy being freed, which means Timothy has to still be alive. So it's got to fit somewhere in there. The other point that helps us to come up with a, a, a time frame is that Jerusalem and the temple and all the worship came to an end in 70 AD when Rome destroyed the city of Jerusalem. There's not a single whiff of that destruction mentioned in the entire book. And you're gonna see that it's all about the temple. It's all about how Jesus is greater than these sacrifices, and yet there's not a mention of it. So the assumption is, it had to have happened, this had to have been written sometime before 70 AD, before the city was destroyed. So that's just a brief introduction. There's a lot more that can be said, but for, that, for now, we're gonna leave it there. And we're going to move on into the text. Let's begin reading there at verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high. And we'll take it to verse 4, although we're only going to study down to verse 3. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. God speaks to man. It's the first obvious point that we have here is that God speaks to mankind. And really, if you look at the opening word of the book of Hebrews, we have the word God. Just kind of like Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is no attempt by, the, uh, by Moses who wrote Genesis, there's no attempt by the author of Hebrews to try and persuade you that God exists. The Bible never seeks to persuade or argue the case that there is a God who exists. And for most of the world, throughout most of her history, There's never been a question that there is a God exists. Now, different opinions as to who that God is and what revelation that has come is actually from God and is from man. And is even as the New Testament will say, doctrines of demons. Well, there's a lot of debate there, but not for the believer. We know that the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is the one true and living God. And he has spoken to us in these last days. We're going to read by his son, Jesus. But it has the assumption that God is. This is what the Bible does have to say, though. It says the Bible says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The person who declares there is not a creator, the Bible says this is foolish. Why is that? Because the creation is all around us for us to look at and to see that there's a designer, there's somebody behind it. Now listen, evolutionary theory is so popular in our country and in the West But this has not been the dominant theme of the ages. The dominant theme of the ages and certainly the testimony of Scripture is that there's a creator God. If we're here, somebody had to make us. If I look at these stars and the expanse of the universe and all the intricacies of, of the creation around, it brings us to the conclusion that there was a designer, that somebody with incredible intellect was putting together the system with which we live Information, a creation, tells us that somebody did it. If you walk through the forest and you see a lean-to where there's shelter and there's branches and someplace for you to get under there, you don't think, wow, that last thunderstorm was different than any thunderstorm I've ever seen before. Look at the way the trees fell and broke off and they landed so perfectly as to provide shelter. You don't think that. You think, hmm, I wonder who built this. If you're walking along the beach... And you see a heart in the sand, and you see initials with the plus sign before it. You don't think, "What a weird tide!" Boy, that's just strange things are happening on this on this shore today. You immediately know that that crude piece of data information is communicating. Now I say crude, but to the couple that just wrote it down, they would be offended at that, right? But what I mean by crude is it's so simple. It's just like it's just lines and a couple of initials. And yet we know what that means. There were some people that were in love on this beach and they wanted to make a statement of it and they enjoyed it. And so for them, there's a lot of communication behind that simple piece of um, uh, uh, data. There's a lot of information behind that. We don't think that the wave accidentally created a heart with initials. We know that somebody did it. So if something so simplistic as that leads us to this conclusion. If an archaeologist is going through and he ends up going into a cave or she goes into a cave and she sees there, you know, pictures of, of, you know, look like some kind of four-legged animal and another four-legged animal and there's somebody, a stick figure on it and it looks like they're shooting something that looks like a bow and arrow. They're excited. They're thrilled. They've made a discovery. Oh, look at this. It's telling us something. It's like, My three-year-old can draw better than that. Have you seen these stick figures in the caves? I mean, it's like, you're like, my my three-year-old could do a better job than that. But there's tremendous excitement. And then they begin to develop, oh, these are people that lived here. And they hunted, and they used these types of weapons. And a whole picture begins to be developed around this simple little cave drawing. And yet, when we come to the intricacies of who we are and our DNA and all the information, we say, yeah, that's an accident. It's inconsistent. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There is a creator. God has come to rescue us and to show us the way back into a right relationship with God. This is what we are talking about when we say that God has spoken. God has spoken about how to be restored to him. Luke 19.10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. John fourteen six, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so God has spoken, and in these last days, we're going to see that he has spoken through his Son. Well, let's talk about how he's spoken in the last days. He's done it through the prophets. He's done it in various ways. But don't understand various times in various ways to mean he was taking shots at getting it right and had to keep on firing over and over again. Now, we God, well, let's try this. No, that's not really a good one. That's, let's scratch that religion. All right, let's shoot this one. No, that's not a good religion either. That's not what's being communicated at all. There's one revelation of God that has expanded as time has gone to include more and more information of that same singular revelation. It has not changed. It has not altered. The Bible just gives us more information about that singular revelation that was determined and the eternity past, in the counsel of the Godhead of how to create and save man. So, various times in various ways just means that God has spoken and in, um, in used different people. He spoke at different uh, times, but it's been through the prophets. Let's think about this for a moment. 1 Peter 1 10 through 12 tells us that even the writers, even these prophets who were getting the revelation, they were aware that they weren't getting the whole thing and they didn't see the full picture. So 1 Peter 1:10 through 12 says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them, verse 12, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So there's this progressive revelation And I'm just going to, I'm going to, we're going to take a few steps through this progressive revelation, progressive singular revelation of God. It begins in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, in various times, in various ways, in the past he spoke, here's the first time God spoke of saving man. Man has sinned, he's been created, He sinned in the garden, and now God for the first time gives a little bit of hope. Verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, the Lord is speaking to Satan. And between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is looking forward to the redemption that would come through the seed of the woman, Jesus, and how he would defeat Satan at the cross. Now, there's not very much information there. And if all you had was Genesis 3.15, you could not say what I just said. But as time went along, the Lord gave more and more information This was the first time he spoke of redemption. Another time in which we see him speak is in Genesis chapter 12 when he comes to a man who's living in the land of the Chaldeans, Abram. And this happens around 2000 BC. It says, now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. Here it is. I will bless you and make your name great And you shall be a blessing. How is it that this man was going to be a blessing? Is Abram, this man who came from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, a blessing to you? Oh, you bet he is. Because it is through his descendant, Jesus, that we have the opportunity for salvation. But again, this is not a ton of information, but we follow along. When God spoke to Eve, she was the only one. When, you know, so they come to the seat of the woman. Okay, she's the only one around. But as he speaks to Abram, who we later know as Abraham, there's millions of people. So who is the woman now? And so the Lord says, Abraham, it's going to come through your family. And so indeed that happens. Isaac is eventually born. We move on through the life of Abram, and we see not only various times, but we see the various ways that he spoke. We see him speaking directly to uh, to Satan, and it was recorded. We see him speaking directly to Abraham. But in Genesis 22, we see him speaking in a various way. Here, God calls Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, and to take him up to Mount Moriah and to offer him there as a sacrifice. Abraham does this. He gets up, he takes his son, maybe as old as 30 years old, And as they travel, they travel to a city that we would be very familiar with, Jerusalem. And They ascend that city, and they go up to Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where the Temple Mount is today. Mount Moriah is where Calvary, Golgotha is, where Jesus hung and died on the cross. And so he took his son, put the wood on his back for the fire, and they went up the mountain. And as they got there, and Abraham was about to offer up Isaac, the Lord said, stop, Abraham. Stop, I will provide myself a sacrifice. And 2,000 years later, Heavenly Father sent his only son with wood on his back up Mount Moriah. And he died on Calvary and died as that sacrifice. So we see the various way that was foreshadowed in the life of this patriarch and his son. We keep on moving into 1446 B.C., this is the Exodus. Moses has got the, uh, got the law now. We just finished studying it. And in this, he was told to build a temple, and there were sacrifices. And in so many ways, both in the furniture and in the offerings, it was foreshadowing the work and the ministry of Jesus, another various way in which God has spoken to us. We move forward into 1000 BC, and we come to the time of King David. And in 2 Samuel 7, 16, he tells David, a descendant of Abraham, he tells David, you are always going to have one to sit upon the throne of Israel. And he will rule forever. And this is a foreshadowing of Jesus and the rule that he will have. So more detail is given. We started out with this gonna be the seed of the woman, but then we know it's gonna be through Abraham. And then that seed is gonna be a blessing to all nations. And we find out that the Lord, the the seed that the Lord is gonna bring, will one day have to die on the Mount Moriah in a similar fashion. And that He's gonna be a king and that He's gonna rule over Israel. And then in 750 BC, we come to the prophet Isaiah and his ministry. And he gives us so much information in Isaiah 53 that this suffering servant who is the seed that was first spoken in Genesis 3:15, that he was going to bear in his body the iniquity and the sin of the world. That he would be bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace would be laid upon him. But that he would make us righteous and he would cleanse us. And we get so much more information about this seed. We know that he's going to, God is gonna provide his own son as a sacrifice. But now we're seeing and we're getting more detail about how he is going to suffer and what he's going to accomplish. And then we come into Luke chapter 1 where we see a man who is doing his service at the temple. He's an old man married to a lady by the name of Elizabeth and neither Zacharias or Elizabeth have a child. And he's in there serving. The Lord comes to him. He says, you're going to have a child. His name is going to be John. He will be the one that was prophesied that will be a forerunner to the coming of the Messiah. So in these various times, in these various ways, in times past, God has spoken. Boy, the revelation, and I just scratched the surface, didn't I? But what this should make us want to do is to read back through the Bible, the Old Testament, and say, how is it that you've spoken in the past? What is the revelation? And it's all moving towards this one person, this one moment, and it is the coming of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. So you can see what he's doing to a group of people that were very familiar with the prophecies and the prophets of the past. And they respected them, they regarded them as they should and we should as being the word of the Lord. But this is what they're having a hard time letting go. How could they possibly let go of that? Well, we find out. Because there in verse 2, he says, In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Oh, as the prophets before. As through, you know, foreshadowing and all the rest. But now, something greater, someone greater is giving us revelation. It is the Son of God. It is God himself. Not a prophet raised up like Jeremiah or Isaiah, but one sent from heaven to be a spokesman, God himself to tell mankind of how to be made right with him. And this is why we should hear what he has to say. It says it's the last days. What days are we living in? We're living in the last days. The last days, the timing of it tells us we look for no further revelation because God himself has brought the revelation and it has come in the last days and we are waiting for what has been revealed to be fully completed. It's last because it's God who's speaking directly to us. In John chapter 1, verses 1-14, through 14, I encourage you to read this on your own. Here John talks about the revelation that came through the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it talks about how he's come, and he's dwelt among us, and he's brought a revelation, but the world didn't want it. But he's the light, and we should receive this light. Jesus is the greater revelation. Now, when making that statement, it doesn't mean that he's correcting those that have gone before him. But it's been a progressive revelation and truth that's moving forward to the culmination of who he is. As we move into these next, well, verse and a half, the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3, we're going to find seven statements the speak of Jesus' greatness. Now you think about this. You're the you're a, a Jewish young man, Jewish, you know, young woman, older woman, older man, who you've been reading Moses, you've been going to the temple, you've been traveling there for Passover and for the Feast of Tabernacles, you've been going there and, and making sacrifices your entire life. And now it's changed. The fulfillment has come. It's, That's what Jesus said. He came to fulfill these things, and indeed he did. How do you move from that into what Jesus has to say? And so the author is going to do this by saying, look at how great he is. I know the revelation we got in the past has come from God, but now we have God himself with us, giving us this revelation. So the first thing that we see of the seven statements of Jesus' greatness is that he is the heir of God. An heir is one who's given the privilege and position of authority. An heir can speak like no servant can. An heir can speak like nobody else, no other employee can. Because the heir is a direct descendant and Jesus is an heir of God. He is the son of God. And so he can speak, and we should be more excited to receive what he has to say and put more weight in what he has to say. Jesus gave a parable that speaks to the expectation that Israel and the world should have had, should have, to hear the Son. Let's turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, verses 1 through 11. We have this parable, it's called the parable of the landowner. And as it is given, Jesus is talking about the various times, the various ways, the prophets. And they're going to be the servants that we're going to read about. And then we're going to read about the son, and Jesus is the son. We're going to read about the father. And the father is God the father. Let's read. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went to a far country. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant—think of a prophet—to the vine dressers, the nation of Israel. Then he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, verse 6 still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. So there's this parable that's given of how the expectation, it doesn't directly state it, but you feel in this parable. How and what the father expected the vine dressers um, to respond. That they would receive the son. Well, he's the heir. He comes with more authority. We haven't listened to the others, but finally we're going to listen to him. And so this is the idea that we should pick up on is that God wants us to hear his son. And so he is the heir. And as heir, we ought to listen to what he has to say. Not the latest person that has a religious thought. Not the latest person who has, you know, spent some time pondering these things. And they have a different idea of who Jesus is and what the Bible has to say. And no, it's not them. We listen to the Son. We listen to the one who's come from the Father. The second thing that we find, and I I think too, I want more point here out of this parable is that we should make certain that we are not found in that place of refusing the son when he comes because of the guilt that is associated with it. That there's gonna be a judgment for those that would reject. You know, to reject Jesus Christ is to usurp his place. That's what's happening. Hey, the air, we're not gonna hear him. We wanna do it our own way. If we get rid of the air, we, we can have this all to ourselves. You are created for the Lord, we're gonna read in just a moment. So don't be found guilty of refusing Jesus. The second thing we see about Jesus, seven statements. First one, he's the heir of God. The second one, he is our creator. And who better to speak to us about how to live than the one that made us? He knows knows you completely. He knows you better than you know yourself. You may say, I wonder why I feel like this. Why do I think like that? Why do I do that? The Lord knows. He knows you. He knows what's going to happen to you before it ever happens to you. He knows what you need in five years from now, and he's preparing you for it at this very moment. He is your creator. And shouldn't we listen to creator God? Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him. And for him, you are not an accident, you are a deliberate act of God for his glory and for his purposes. And when we discover living for the Lord, then we discover the depth and the beauty of being one of God's creation. While estranged from him, we struggle. So, why should we listen to him? He's the heir, he's the creator. Thirdly, we read there, he's also the brightness of his glory. Of course, speaking of God the Father, who being in the brightness of his glory, he shines forth the glory of God. And we're going to read the express image. It'll be the next point. When we see Jesus, you see the glory of God. When you see the compassion and the love and the kindness and the truthfulness of Jesus, you are seeing the glory of who our God is. You can't separate the rays of sun from the sun. Nor can you separate the glory of Jesus from the glory of God. There is a triune God that we worship. They are one in their substance or in their essence. They are divine. And he shines forth the glory of God. Boy, not only is he an heir, not only is he the creator, but directly he is God. His glory. And it goes on, number four, to say the express image of his person. Think of a signet ring being pressed into hot wax. And if you make the good impression, when you pull it up, you look at the signet ring, or you look at the wax, and you know exactly what the ring is like. You know what the image, um, you, you know what the original looks like from the image that it leaves behind. And Jesus is the express. He is the exact image of the Lord. If you want to know God, then you need to know Jesus. If you know Jesus, then you know the Father. If you know the Father, you know Jesus. He is the exact image of Him. Philip asked Jesus a question. It's John chapter fourteen, verses eight through eleven, and he says to Jesus, "Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us." That's not asking much, is it? Just show us the Father. And Jesus blows his mind and says, "Have I been with you so long?" As a matter of fact, you could almost say, you could this, you could almost read it like this. Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Done. Already did it. What do you mean you already did it? He knows there's going to be a question that comes afterwards, and so he says, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? You don't know who I am? You don't get it? He who has uh, seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. (laughs) Philip, you have seen the Father because you've seen me. Jesus is the express image of the Father. You need not see any more to know who your God is. Number five, he is the sustainer, Of all creation. Not only did he create it, but he holds this whole thing together. He's the one that allows the wind to move across this planet. So the the rain clouds can form and it can water this earth. If he did not sustain the processes of, of this earth, where would we be? If the law of gravity was to cease, what would happen? If he stopped holding the atoms together of us and everything else, what would happen? Think about what happens when we split an atom and the power that it releases. But as impressive as an atom bomb is and the power that it releases, it takes more power to hold it together than to split it. The Lord holds this entire universe together This is it. He's the sustainer. And if he sustains us, then certainly I want to hear what he has to say. Not only is he the sustainer of creation, but he is the one who removes our sins. He's the cleanser of his creation. And this is what we read there in Hebrews 3, that when he had by himself purged our sins, he didn't do it along with any other priesthood. Nobody helped him along. There were no animals involved. He himself purged our sins. The Lord cleansed your sins. The Son of God. The express image of God. He is the one that has cleansed your sins. I think it's important for us to see this emphasis. When he had by himself. I mean, it's emphatic here. It could have just said when he had purged our sins. But it adds this emphasis. By himself. Which should communicate something to us. Is that you've not just been cleansed in this grand religious plan. It's God himself that has taken the work of cleansing your heart. And he has touched your life. And he has touched mine. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that suffering servant who died on the cross, then your sins have been forgiven. David wrote and said, Oh, how happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. What? It's good to be free of sin. It's good to not be guilty before the Lord. It's good to have sin removed. When you get to heaven and you stand before the Lord in Christ Jesus, you will stand there faultless before his presence, Jude says, with singing. You know, when you get to heaven... And you've been one that's been cleansed. You may struggle with the idea that you're cleansed today. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But when you're in the presence of God, you will so fully know and understand the perfect, complete work of your sins being cleansed. That there will be no shame. There's going to be no intimidation. There will be incredible reverence. But you're going to to be rejoicing. You're not going to be in fear. You are going to rejoice. You're going to be dancing before the Lord. You can write it down. Troy Warner will be dancing. Be the first time that ever happened that anybody would want to see. But um, people say, yeah, somebody asked me, do you dance? I'm a pastor. Do you dance? I'm like, in the kitchen. I'm a kitchen dancer. That's where I dance. With my wife. Nowhere else. But you know, when we get to heaven, we're going to be celebrating in the throne room of God that we have been cleansed. And the Lord describes how complete our cleansing is. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so I have separated your sins from you. Now, if the Lord would have said, I have separated them as far as the north is from the south, is that a measurable distance? Yeah, you can go to Google Earth, put your dot wherever you want on the earth, and then draw the line to the North Pole, and you can find out exactly how far. Once you go one step over the North Pole, you are now what? Heading south. And you can measure that distance. But east to west, there's no east pole and there's no west pole. It's an immeasurable distance. And that's how far the Lord has separated you from your sins. He's purged our sins. What a joy, what a blessing. You are clean if you are in Christ Jesus. And some of you are probably walking around still feeling guilty and ashamed of a sin that you committed 20 years ago. And you've repented, it's not in your life anymore. But for some reason, you still can't accept the forgiveness and the purging that the Lord himself has done for you. He has applied his blood to your life. You are clean. So rather than moping around and feeling guilty and ashamed of what happened in the past, honor the cross of Christ and start rejoicing in your forgiveness. Now, if you're still living in active sin, if you are still deciding to live in a sinful life, then I pray that there is some shame and guilt that will bring us to the Lord, that we might repent. And if you repent of the Lord today, then you walk out, not walking in that shame and guilt. He has forgiven you of your sins. It is good to be cleansed. You might be here thinking, well, not my kind of sin. My kind of sin. If you folks knew my kind of sin, you wouldn't even want me in here. Guess what? We're already here. We were just like you. The only difference between us and you is that we found that we can be forgiven in Christ Jesus. But we pray before you walk out the door, you too will become just like us, forgiven by the Lord. You can be clean. It can all be left behind. But the enemy in your mind would love to say, and even the world and maybe even some people that are close to you, you can never change. Well, on your own you can't. But the Lord can cleanse you. Lastly, we read that he is the exalted one. He's a, sat down at the right hand of majesty on the high, which is communicating to us that he is in complete authority. He sits in that place where he watches over the universe and all answers to him. He is the authority. He is the power. He sits, though, as your advocate as well when the accuser of the brethren comes in. God has clearly manifested himself to us. He's provided us the greatest communication the world has ever heard is called the gospel. God has spoken in the past, but in these last days, today, he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Don't leave the revelation of Jesus Christ to find something else that's gonna leave you busted and broke. Receive him and walk in him. Come and receive it. You will love being cleansed. You know, in these songs, we talk about being free. We talk about not bearing the shame anymore. That's because these are the benefits of having received Christ. I got two more verses and we're going to close. If you are a believer and you have heard and you have embraced Jesus, the son, the creator, the sustainer, the one who sat down at the right hand of the Father, the one who has purged your sins, if you have received him and that revelation, then my question is, are you still hearing him about how to live your life? Because we must. This is what scriptures say. I'm going to read to you from the New Living Translation. James 1, through 25 says, But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see your face walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. So you came to Jesus Christ. You put your faith and trust in him. But are you still obeying the word? Are you still hearing what he has to say? Is there room for Jesus to speak into your life today? To open the word of God and hear what he has to say about your sexuality? To hear what he has to say about your relationships? To hear what he has to say about your money? Is there there a place for God's word to speak to you about, you know, pleasure and alcohol? Is there a place for the Lord to step in and speak? And once he speaks, how do you respond do you respond and say, all right, Lord, I bow my knee. Or do you say, well, you know, I think. And now we begin to give Jesus kind of like he sits upon the throne and we're giving them the hip check saying, I think you need to hear what I have to say. I've got some thoughts about how to live life now. I know what you have to say. But did you know? Of course he knows. And we began to question the authority of God who's sitting upon the throne to tell us how to walk and live. We need to be done with that today. Believer, you need to let Jesus be your Lord if indeed he is your master. And quit evaluating what he has to say. Where, where, where do we get the idea that we can take God's word as his, those that receive forgiveness and then decide if we want to obey it or not? Jesus said, if you don't obey me, you're not mine. Oh, Lord, Lord. Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And he says, I don't even know who you are. You got all these things you're talking about, but I don't even know your name. Who are you? You're not written in my book. You've not professed me as Lord and Savior. We're not saved by our works, but those that are saved are those who walk in obedience. Lastly, Matthew seventeen five. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Hear what Jesus has to say. Whether you're coming to him for forgiveness and to enter into a relationship with him for the first time, or whether you've known the Lord your whole life, but you've been doing it your own way, let's be done with that. As Peter would say, you spent enough of your last time living for your own pleasures. Or Paul would say, it's high time. It's high time that we would walk in obedience to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for your truth. Just while our heads are about, I want to give you this opportunity to respond to the Lord. If you've not come to Jesus Christ as your Savior, then right where you sit, pray and ask him to come into your life. Ask him to be your Lord. Ask him to cleanse you of your sins. Be done with that, and he will forgive you, and he will cleanse you. If you are a believer, are you hearing what he has to say? Are you fooling yourself? Are you fooling yourself thinking you can do what you want and somehow negotiate carnality between yourself and a holy God? The Lord loves you, and he wants to bless you. Thank you, Lord, that you are so patient, you are so kind. That, Lord, you come again and again, speaking to our hearts and our lives. But may we not take your long suffering for granted. May we show respect and honor to you. Lord, in our midst today, the Son, the Creator, who has come to purge our sins, may we hear what you have to say.